Father in heaven, we, we, we come upon this subject of love, and we know that the greatest example of love is, in, is how you gave your Son to die on the cross for our sins. And we pray, Father, that we as Christians would emulate this love, that as we have been loved and we know what it means to be thought of, cared for, benefited because of the triune Godhead and what he has done, what God has done uh, for us, we can't help but love one another. And so, Father, I pray if there has been uh, weeds of discord and bitterness that are growing in our hearts, I pray that you would remove them. I pray, Father, that if there has been uh, things that we need to ask for forgiveness of, that you would uh, burden our hearts to do that. We pray, Father, that this morning well, we would be refreshed in your love and thus be able to be refreshed in loving one another. We ask, Father, that you would do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. One of the very first things I noticed about Christians and what attracted me to, the, to take the claims of Christ seriously was the demonstration of love to one another. At first, I thought it was a bit weird, you know, when I was going to Community Bible Church. I thought it was a bit weird. There were people who genuinely loved God and wanted to be around each other as they loved God. I was kind of shocked about it. I always thought they were trying to sell me something, but they weren't. They were just loving on me. When I got saved, I reveled in this new fellowship and love we have with believers, this supernatural love. When I discovered was, what I discovered was that it was a very hallmark of Christianity itself. Anywhere there are true believers, there is true and biblical Christian love. From the Bay Area town where I was from to a church on the island in the Philippines with no walls to a church meeting in a garage in South Asia to straw mats in a dimly lit building in Delhi. Wherever I went, I noticed there was a love for one another and an acceptance as me as a brother instantaneously. I noticed that when I got saved, it didn't matter if you were black or white or brown. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor or young or old. It didn't matter if you were educated or not educated. When Christ saves you and he changes your heart, you now have a love for that person who sits across the pew. Or in our case, chairs, right? You have now this affection, this bond. Because you love Christ, now you love each other. And in this passage, 1 John chapter 4, uh, why don't we read it? It's a kind of a longer passage. We're going to read uh, verses 7 to 21. Beloved, here's the, here's the command. That this is what John says. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. 
If we love if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We see from verse 7 the very force of this passage. He says, beloved, and John is talking from, he is in exile on the island of Patmos. And as he writes this letter to the churches, he says, beloved, and he calls them beloved because they are beloved of God and they're beloved to him. And he tells them that they ought to love one another. And so that is the, the force, the imperative that is there. So from this passage, God calls you, if you are a Christian, he calls you to live a life of supernatural love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, let us love one another. And the context there is the local church. Now, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to understand there are four distinctions of God's supernatural love, perfect love. First, in verses 7 and 8, it is the foundation of perfect love. What allows a Christian to love? What allows a Christian to give of himself? Okay. What allows a Christian to stop thinking of himself as the end all and be all of everything? The call for Christians to love one another. Well, what is love? It is defined not by emotion. This love, we already talked about it over and over. The Apostle John is saying that it is a mark of a Christian. A Christian has to affirm right doctrine. A Christian has to live a changed and righteous life. And a Christian now loves the brethren. Love here is not defined by emotion. It's not defined by whim. It's not defined by changing feelings. It is a decisive love which takes on sacrifice regardless of any benefit received. That's what the word agape means in the original text. It is, if I were to say it this way, I will love you whether or not you return any good I do to you or whether or not you acknowledge it. God calls us to that kind of standard of love. It's not even dependent on the attractiveness or the winsomeness of the object. Now, he says you ought to love because for love is from God. Now, God is the true source of love. Before you and I even existed, there was love within the Godhead of the Trinity. God did not create you because he needed someone to love. He didn't create you because he lacked love. In fact, God uh, in the person's 
of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit enjoyed a love relationship from before the foundation of the world. Turn with me to John chapter 17, the Gospel of John chapter 17. This is Jesus talking about his relationship with God the Father before the foundation of the world. And in his high priestly prayer, he says in John chapter 17, verse 24, he says in verse 23, let me read from there. Chapter 17, verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Look at verse 24. Look at this astounding source and this fount of love. The foundation of all love begins within the Godhead itself. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with my goodwill. It doesn't start with me being as nice as I possibly can. True Christian supernatural love that perseveres starts from God himself. He says here in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that is Christians, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For, watch, watch what he says. This is what Jesus says. You loved me before the foundation of the world. The reason and the whole thrust of the argument of why you ought to love and why you ought to care for the frame of mind of your brothers and sisters, the physical needs of your brothers and sisters, the growth of your brothers and sisters, the reason why this has to be true is because there is love coming forth from the very character of God himself. If in fact you've been saved by God, you will look like God. Now, to define, this is what the world does, okay? The world, this is what the world does, and this is what you'll see in protest signs, and this is what you'll see in the media, and this is what you'll see in sitcoms, and this is what you'll hear on the radio, and you'll hear it in all the music, and love ballads, right? So many songs written. It, the, the most famous, the most popular topic is love. But it isn't God's love. See, to define love apart from God is to strip it of its meaning. This is a true love story. See, the problem when man speaks apart from Christ, he has no real frame of reference other than himself. So when he says that I love you, he really means I love you because of the things you give to me. I love you because of the way your hair is. I love you because of the way you dress. I love you because of your smile. There, it, is not, it is not rooted and grounded in the definer, the one who establishes love himself. So when he speaks of love, it's always in relationship to what he thinks is right or what he thinks love should be. We see this now in society, slogans such as love wins, love wins, and it's defined by their own mind, not by what God has determined what true love is. Without any bearing to what God would say or regard to what God thinks. We love, beloved, you are to love because, what does it say? For God is love. 
for God, for love is from God. Defining love apart from God is like defining sunlight apart from the sun. Well, we don't need to talk about the sun when I talk about sunlight. Yes, you do. Because the sun determines the sunlight, doesn't it? Defines the sunlight. Is the source of sunlight. To talk about surf waves apart from the ocean is to strip it of its definition. The source, the source is part and parcel of the definition itself. It outlines. It defines what love is. So when I look at myself and I look at the way I react towards people and the way I, I treat people, I ought not look at the way a man would define love. I ought to look at the way God would. See, God, all through Scripture, talks about His love. In Psalm 119, 64, it says, The earth is full of Thy loving kindness, O Lord, teach me Thy statutes. Later on, in 1 John chapter 4, 16, He's going to say, And we come to know Him and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. He is the very essence of love Himself. That's not all that God is, but anything, any real experience of true love comes from God himself. Now, this is telling. How do you apply this in your life? This is telling. Because as I said, you need to now judge yourself by God's standard of love. Okay. Judge yourself by God's standard of love. Not man's fickle, emotional, bartering, negotiating type of love, but God's standard. When you have an argument, are you loving the way God calls you to love, the way, in fact, God loves you? Or are you, I will withhold love because of such and such? Or I will love you if you do this for me? Is your love patient, as the first Corinthians 13 says? Is your love patient? Is it kind? Not jealous? Not, does not brag? Not arrogant? Does not act unbecomingly? Does not seek its own? Not provoked? Does not take into account a wrong suffered? Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth? Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So as I look at that, that battery that test of what love truly is, and I look at myself and I go, you know, I'm not really loving the way God has called me to love. And, and when, when I have a cold shoulder or when I'm irritated and I don't want to extend, right? I know what's happening here. And I'm saying and I'm rationalizing in my mind, well, I'm not going to do it because you didn't do this. Or I did this to you because you did this. I already know I'm not loving the way God has called me to love. Brothers and sisters, our love ought not to be defined and measured by you. It ought to be defined and measured by God himself. Do I love like God? Now, there's a communication of that love and it, 
Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he, he says, is born of God, and that's a phrase. It's in the perfect passive in the original Greek language. Is born of God, that means an action was done to you in the past. It is the passive. It's action was done unto you in the past with ongoing results. So having been born is a better translation. Having been born of God or has been born of God. If you have been born of God, then you know God, right? And then he says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is loving. You notice this is an absolute statement. It is absolutely inconceivable for someone who claims to be a Christian, who claims to say they know God, and yet does not love other Christians. Now, I'm not talking about very hateful people who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I'm not talking about those. You could put on a, you could put on a label and not be loving. That doesn't mean you're, you're a Christian. I'm talking about those who have been truly born again. That's the true definition of Christian. You're not a Christian because of birth. You're not a Christian because of family. You're not a Christian because you even go to church. You are a Christian when God actively works upon you causes you to be born again and now you have new life in him and the things you hate you now love and the things you love you now hate right so now your life is changed god says he removes the heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh and your heart now beats for god that is a christian it's all over the new testament it's all over the old testament how does someone get regenerated? How does someone get changed? See, the problem is, if you try and force people and coax people and manipulate people to love one another, it doesn't work. Man has all these kind of systems and pours money into all this kind of government and pours money into inter international relations. And if you do that, yes, you can make treaties, you can make agreements, but in the heart of heart, the hearts are not changed what brings peace what brings love what brings true genuine acceptance is when god changes that heart now all of a sudden your differences your background your economic background your education your race your uh place of origin all those things kind of melt to the wayside because now we're brothers and sisters in christ and I got your back and you got mine. Amen? Amen? Is that reality? That's what happened to me. These strange people now are of my family. How did that happen? It says, For God is love. He is the source and the fount of love. If you are a child, having been born of him you would bear the same attributes. A lot of times some people would look at my son, John Carlo, and they go, oh, you are his son. They look at him, and then they look at me, oh, yeah, there's, there's a real, uh, especially when we go to different parties or something like that, they'll see. See, as a child of God, you will begin to look like your father. And the way you look like your father is if you've been born again, you now have this new supernatural love for one another. You want to be with one another. You want to fellowship with one another. You want to go over the scriptures with one another. You want to pray together with one another. 
you want to share life with one another. And so John says this is one of the hallmarks of being saved. So first, it is the foundation of perfect love. Where does true love, real love, perfect love come from? It comes and is sourced and is, it is based upon God's very character himself. God is love. Secondly, there is, in order for us to love one another, we need to understand the apex of perfect love. The apex of perfect love. Now, the apex, I can call it the crest or the high point or the very best example, the quintessential example of what love is. Not only is God the source of love, but he puts on full display the greatest example of love that is the giving of his own son. And he is mocked and he is called a curse word in common language. But this is the ultimate apex for you to see broadcasted better than any banner, better than any uh, mass email, better than any plane with the smoke coming out the back. The cross is the ultimate display of God's love towards you. It is the highest person. Notice he says, by this the love of God was manifested in us. Manifested simply means to be shown, to be revealed. God wants to reveal how much he loves you. Okay? Not that you're the center of the universe, God is. But it's amazing that the center of the universe actually loves you. Actually takes thought of you. I, I, it still boggles my mind. When you think about the truth of it, how in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that he, in Ephesians chapter 1, that before the foundation of the world, he thought of you. And so now, this, this apex of perfect love is shown by the highest person. Notice, he says, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that he might live through him. And you notice he wants to show love. The way God demonstrates love is by the sending of his son. The word therefore begotten means his only unique son into the world so that we might live through him. And if, if you think about it, the phraseology is the same as John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. What is it? For God so? Love the world. This ought to be the most famous verse in the world, right? For God so loved the world that he what? His gave his only son that and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the way God demonstrates his love is the giving of his son. See, it's not simply in word. Love acts. Love moves. And love seeks to meet needs with a appropriate provision. Okay? And our need as, the, as, as sinners without God, um, at enmity with God, didn't want God over us, didn't want His authority, didn't want to live under His rules, our need was a Savior to die on the cross for us. And so His love moved Him. You've you got to understand this. When you see blood on the cross through, your, the, through the eye of faith, it is not grotesque. It is not, it is not ugly. It is not deformity to the Christian. It is love. He died for me. 
He washed my sins. I don't have to think about it anymore. And yet he is spurned in this world. So it is by this highest person. And it is the highest price. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God. Again, John stops and he says, it doesn't start with you. So much of Christianity, it leaves a distaste in my mouth. It always starts with man. It always begins with man. Oh, what do you want to do with your life? God can help you. What do you want to do with this? God can help you on your journey. What do you, it makes me sick and it makes God sick. It starts with God. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. So it is the highest person, the monogonase, the unique, only begotten son. And now it is the highest price. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation is a word that means blood sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. Before you were saved, you you were at enmity with God. Even if you're apathetic, the Bible says... We are born in sin. We didn't want anything to do with him. And in fact, my sinful life and any sin, any sin that is outside of his perfection proves it to be so. And so I owe God, but it's a, the price is too high. So if I were to die apart from Christ, I'd go straight to hell. I know it because his standard of perfection is flawless. It is blameless. I cannot meet that standard because the person whom I offended is the highest person. Do you see? It's one thing to insult my kid brother. It's quite another to insult uh, an ambassador. Quite another to insult the president. Do you see what I'm saying? To insult the king. So the higher you go, the higher the offense is. And so now I know that I have sinned against him and there needs to be a payment. God says there must be a payment. The problem is I can't pay it. And when folks say, well, I've done enough good things and I've done enough good things. I didn't kill anybody. I think I'd make it into heaven. That doesn't cut it. Why? Because it doesn't meet perfection. Every lie you've ever told, every lustful thought you've ever had in your mind, everything you, anything you've ever stolen, even a paperclip, God sees and it has not met his perfection. What is it that needs to take place that I am undone? What is it that needs to take place? There needs to be a perfect blood sacrifice. And so Jesus here, he spills his blood on the cross as the perfect sacrifice. Why is he perfect? Because he lived a perfect life. Because he never sinned. Because he is God in the flesh. It is again The perfect requirement was met by the perfect person. And he did this broadcasting to the world. He says this in Romans. Look at this in Romans 3.25. This is the very heart of the heart of the Bible. This is the heart of the Bible. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Notice, I'll start with 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25, okay? This is the heart of the Bible. Whom God displayed publicly. This wasn't a secret. This wasn't kept under wraps. This wasn't, a, this wasn't held in confidence, in, uh, confidentially. He, he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Jesus Christ was clearly given for you, for me. See, this connection of giving and loving is all over the scriptures. Okay? If you say you love and you don't give, you don't really love. This is what the Bible is saying. See, when Jesus says... Uh, in, I'll even read in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5.25, you know this well. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's love and then there's the action, giving of himself. Okay. This is the problem. We don't give of ourselves enough. We hold back. We need to give of ourselves. Now he says, God the Father gave his son for love. You remember in Romans 5.8. Let me read this for you. But God, why don't you go there since, since you're there. Romans 5.8. You have to see this, okay? You got to see this connection. God loves you. This is how much he loves you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans chapter 5. Sometimes my kids will jokingly say, uh, I'll say, did you, know, did you know I love you? And then they'll say, really, how much do you love me? How do you love me? You know, so there's a little banter. They're kidding. They're not trying to manipulate me. They're just kidding. I know they, they know, and they know that I know that they know that. You know how that works. <laughs> yeah. Let me read you a verse. Look at this verse. If you ever doubt that God really cares for you, has, has your heart in mind, has your problems in mind. If you ever doubt, look at Romans 5.8. God, how, how, how do you love me? Look at verse 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. God says, let me show you how much I love you. I will send my son to a people who give him no regard, to a people who give him no honor. You see, it's quite different. Think of it as parents. You know, you know what I'm talking about. It's quite different to invite someone to your home who you never know. And it is quite different to invite someone to your home who has killed your child. Do you see the difference? What kind of a love is this? This is beyond what I can do. Do you understand? That kind of love, God is saying, I love a despicable people so much. 
It's not like, uh, oh, he looked at my life and said, oh, I, I know Angelo's going to do great things for God. He's, he's such a great guy. I'm going to send my son and he's going to die for God. It's not like he looked like that. He, he looked down the quarters of time and he saw my life and he says, God, Angelo would never turn to me. He would be a rebel. He would, he would be hating and hate others. He would destroy relationships. But even in that, I will send my son to die for him. And he did it for you if you're a Christian. God loves you. If you ever doubt, you know, God doesn't answer my prayers. God, does, God doesn't listen to me. If you ever doubt, look at the cross. He loves you. If this is a foreign language to you, oh, would you turn to him? He desires to save you. Turn to him in faith. Bend the knee. Now, we ought to love one another. So to love with God's love, you must first know the foundation of perfect love. Secondly, you must appreciate the apex of perfect love. Thirdly, you have to be the recipients of perfect love. You got to be the recipients of it. You can't love unless you understand that God loves you. You won't have the security. You won't have the, the, uh, the ability to risk. When you love, it's always a risk. Did you know that? When you love, when you extend yourself, it's always a risk. You could be rejected. You could not be unappreciated. You could be laughed at, ridiculed. But every time you step out in love, it's a risk. And that's how God wants you to live. Real love. Risky love for the gospel, if I could say it that way. Now, here is God's work. Notice in verse 12. Verse 12. Going back to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 12, it says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, this is God's work. God resides in you. This language, no man has seen God at any time, is the same language that he uses in John chapter 1, verse 18, where it says that Jesus explains the Father. And now, if you look at here, as, as the ultimate language of his communication of love, and now he says in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, look at this verse. He says, no one has seen God at any time. Okay. This is a truth, okay? You haven't seen God the Father in his full glory. No one has. There are people who say they have. No, they haven't. The Bible says, right? No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What does this mean? What he is saying is this, that when God saves you and when you love one another, this is why the church is absolutely important. And when folks get a gander of you, when they look at you, they actually see an expression, a demonstration of God's love itself. In other words, just put it this way, sometimes you got to think of this, okay? In your life, when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're at home, when you're 
uh, out, out uh, dropping off the kids when you're at the supermarket. The way you act and the way you, the way you live your life is an expression of God's love for that person. In other words, sometimes the only impression, the only demonstration of God's saving love that anyone ever sees is you. You demonstrate that. It's, that's why it is important. It is crucial that you open your heart. That you just don't think about your schedule. That you just don't think about what I need to do. That you just don't think about, I have to get to the groceries. I have to do this. You all have to do that, yes. But you cannot become insular. You have to open your heart. Why? Because it explains who God is. And a church without love is a sorry church. It's not a church. A church without love lacks power because a church without love lacks the very witness of Christ himself. Now, he says the Spirit was given to you in verse 13. By this we know that we, we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. You could write down this, Romans chapter 5. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Okay, He says here in Romans chapter 5 verse 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to you. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. This is what the Bible teaches. To mediate the very presence of Christ. You don't receive the Holy Spirit later. You receive the Holy Spirit when you are saved. Then it says, verse 14, that he is the Savior. Savior from sin. He's the Savior of the world. Savior from sin. And he saves you from a love of yourself. A paralyzing love of yourself that only cares for you. It's a horrible life to live just only for yourself. Did you know that? That's a horrible life. Uh, every Christmas, every Christmas, you always see the same movies that always play, and then you always see Ebenezer Scrooge. You ever see that? Scrooge. A man who loved his own money and his self at the expense of everyone. And, and when you watch that, you go, man, that's disgusting. He only cares about himself because in your heart, you know that's true. To live for self is wrong, right? To live for self, only for self, is not the way we've been designed. God has called you to be a relational creature who gives of himself. If you are a Christian, you've been called to be a conduit of grace, an open heart, a welcoming home. That's what God has called you to do. Yet, sometimes we back into ourselves. We only love those who love me. I'm only going to love those who love me. I only care for those who I could benefit from. No, God calls us to love like he loves. Now, in verse 15, verse 15, if you are a recipient of this perfect love, notice there is a believer's response, and it starts in verse 15 with confession. And that means right doctrine, okay? True love, he says here, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. 
True love cannot be appreciated without true doctrine. True doctrine about Christ, about the Word of God, defines what love is so that it's not sloppy, so that it's not trying to nail jello on the wall. Right? True love is defined as seeking the good of those, uh, uh, seeking the good of those apart from any benefit from me because of the love that Christ has given me. That is true love. Now, it, all, it is also based on reconciliation. Notice in verse 16, it says, we have come to know and have believed the love. Notice this phrase. This is remarkable. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has, what does it say? For us. This is astonishing. Okay. Notice he says, I come to know and then I believe, you would think it would be in the doctrine. I would believe that Christ died on the cross. I would believe that Christ came in the flesh. No, he says, your mind has now been changed. It says, now you have believed that the love which God has for us. What does that mean? Before, the Bible says you are at enmity with God. Romans 8, 7 says, the mind is set on the flesh, is hostile towards God. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 says that we have enmity against him. But what happens is when God changes your mind, he says here, he says, you have believed the love which God has for us. You actually now believe that. The caricatures of how you held God before have been changed. The things that you used to think God was cruel now have been changed. The things that you think... Uh, there's no more blaming of God. Folks who blame God, uh, you, you see this all the time. There are folks who blame God for all bad things, but they don't thank Him for any of the good things. They think God is against them. They think God is an evil dictator. Atheists tend to be those who have had a difficult time in their life, and now they despise the very thought of God. What happens is now you come to realize God is for me in Christ Jesus. I am not fighting him anymore in Christ Jesus. Are you still fighting? Are you his or not? Are you still fighting this love? Then he says God is love. So to love with God's true and real love, you have to know the foundation of perfect love. You have to appreciate the apex of perfect love. You have to be a glad recipient of perfect love. And lastly, you have to live in the freedom in perfect love. And that's verses 17 to 21. And he says here, real briefly, verse 17, By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Your liberty, love grants true freedom. Your liberty is this. You have a freedom from judgment. The word there, confidence, means a boldness. And in the day of judgment, that, what, is that, what that is saying is that when all is settled, you know you're in perfect standing. Now, that would be cocky, egotistical, and prideful if I said, I know my standing is right because of what I did, wouldn't it? You would say, that's arrogant, and I would say, you are right. See, anyone who says that they can go to heaven based on their own merit is arrogant, But I know 
that I have a right standing with God, not because of what I have done, but what, what Christ has done on my behalf. His merit has been poured upon me. What this says is, now I have a confidence because what? Notice what it says. Verse 17. We have confidence in the day of judgment because, look at this astonishing verse. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Wow. What does that mean? So he is, so also are we in this world. That means, not because of anything I've done, but the way that God the Father sees the merit of Christ, because it has been applied to me, now he sees me as totally righteous in this world right now. And it releases me from fear. It releases me from anxiety attacks. Notice it says here, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes, fear is a result of a guilty conscience. The Bible talks about this all the time. David said in Psalm chapter 32 that my vitality was drained away. And now God says you have no more fear because you are standing on solid ground in love. This is the commandment we have from him and the one who loves God should love his brother also. You are free from self-centeredness. So brothers and sisters, as we close, you're called to love one another in Christ. To love one another. Love one another because of, because of the, um, the foundation of perfect love. Because of the apex of perfect love. The recipients of perfect love. And the freedom in perfect love. I remember when I first got saved. I'll never forget this. I'll never ever forget this. I, I was... Uh, Raised by my mom, two boys, me and my brother uh, in Vallejo, and we had run out of money. And I had just become a Christian, we ran out of money. We couldn't get our utilities paid. We had no food in the fridge. And I remember uh, Bob Michaels came, <laughs> you guys know him. Um, he's a brother, one of my brothers, and Robert Vega came. And I barely knew them barely knew them. They came with groceries. And we were able to eat that one day. I'll never forget that. But what is it that drove these guys to even care for this teenager who had, who comes from a broken home? And no money for electricity. The electricity got cut off. What what is it that drove them? You know what drove them? Is that God's love acted upon them, sent his son. He died on the cross. They became born again as they believed upon him. And because they have now the love of God in their hearts, it acts and it moves. Oh, brothers and sisters, would we be a people who act? and move and take risks with God's love because we are secure on solid ground that my standing before God is firm.
So I really, in essence, can't lose anything. I really can't. See, that is what gives you impetus. This is what gives you force to move forward. This is what causes you to allow, allows you to still love and not grow callous in this world and not grow mean-hearted and bitter-hearted and, bit, and to be filled with bitterness. That's what causes me to still have an, a soft heart. God's love for me is sure. Are you sure in the love of God? Have you been born again? Do you trust in the Savior? I trust you will. Father in heaven, we come. Thank you for this challenge and thank you for the provision that is in Christ. Help us to risk, help us to love, help us to go the extra mile because your son did, because you did. We pray, Father, you would do this mighty work. We ask, Father, that uh, if there are things blocking our love, would we ask for forgiveness, reconcile. And Lord, I pray for that, that one who is thinking and contemplating about Jesus Christ. I pray you would invite them and they would receive your love in salvation through faith. In Jesus' name, help us to sing. Amen.